0: This podcast is brought to you by Oh My Audiobooks, where the pleasure is all yours. This is Love Notes with Julie and Jonathan.
1: Hi, I'm Jay Huss.
0: And I'm Jonathan McLean.
1: And this is Love Notes Podcast. Welcome to Love Notes with Julian Jonathan, conversations with today's best romance writers, where we pick the brains of the best in today's romance.
0: How are you doing, Julie?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. What's uh, what's going on in your world right now, today, as we speak?
1: Right now, as we speak, we're getting we're getting ready to release some books. Right.
0: That's true. I should probably be paying more attention to that. Um, we uh, <laughs> we have. Uh, both uh, uh, a print book and an audiobook releasing in the next couple of weeks.
1: Yes, we have the Square, which is the second book in the Shape of Love series. And then we have the Pierced audiobook and the square releases on July 29th and Pierced releases on February 5th. So I know everybody's excited for those two things.
0: Absolutely. And by July 29th, we mean January.
1: Did I say July? You did. Oh.
0: Are we going to re-release it? Are we? You know what? We should <laughs> tell people again. that we're releasing it <laughs> on January and then we're doing a limited re-release in July. I think that would be amazing. That would really develop. That would get the hype up. That would get the excitement going.
1: I don't know where <laughs> um, I got July from. Obviously, I'm stuck in summer.
0: Obviously, you're yearning for the weather to change again.
1: Yes. I think that's maybe it.
0: Uh, that's actually uh, it actually brings up an, an interesting question, because uh, one of the, the questions uh, that have been submitted to us um, is from Gene. And Gene uh, is wondering what the hardest part of indie publishing is. And I might suggest based on this conversation that the hardest part of indie publishing is trying to keep everything straight in your head.
1: I I think that's absolutely true. Like, um, I don't even bother trying to remember things anymore. There's always something happening. And it would drive me crazy, I think, if I had to memorize all these dates. And I I don't know. I I guess that's just, I've done it so long and so many release dates have come and gone that it's like, I don't worry about it until I absolutely have to. (laughs)
0: Right. I mean, that is the most, the, the mo- I mean, I, simply, right? Like the most challenging thing, we've talked about this a bunch. The most difficult thing that I had to adapt to was the fact that you're not just making work. You're, I mean, like in my other career, in my acting career, it's pretty simple. I show up, I say the things they tell me to do, I go home, they pay me. This is like more like running a small business. I mean, this is like opening a restaurant or like starting a clothing line or something. It's because it's all you. No one else is accountable.
1: Right. At any given day, I have, you know, probably a hundred things that cross my mind that either got done or need to be done or will soon need to be done um or have a deadline attached to them and obviously i cannot think about 100 things so i pick two or three every day and that's all i think about
0: but it's interesting because i feel like it's a double-edged sword like the, the the that's the most challenging thing about being an indie author and the most satisfying thing about being an indie author is that you get total control
1: you yeah don't have to, it's, you know, it's true yeah
0: so so both of those things are uh, are true um but uh, it would be impossible for us to uh, publish independent books and publish our own audiobooks and do this podcast all by ourselves. Uh, and so because of that, we have to uh, now introduce our, our sponsor, our producer, our cohort, our, our the wind beneath our wings, uh, Oh My Audiobooks. Uh, oh My Audiobooks publishes hands down by far the best romance listening experience that you were going to find with superb casting and the highest quality production standards. And from Oh My Audiobooks, if you're into taboo romance, do yourself a favor and check out Saffron A. Kent's audiobook, Medicine Man. Darkly sensual Medicine Man is a forbidden doctor-patient love story that's a passionate tale of love and survival that will crawl under your skin. Featuring the voice talents of Shayna Thibodeau and Jason Carpenter doing the narration. You can sign up today on Audible to get your free 30-day trial and check out Medicine Man. Produced by Oh My Audiobooks. The pleasure is all yours. And uh, before we jump into today's guest, we'll take one more quick question here from the internet. Um, here's a good one. Karen... Wants to know. Karen wants to know. Do romance writers have a good relationship, or is it competitive in any way? Uh, I'm highly competitive with Julie. Um, I try and uh, and and outsell her uh, with our joint books, uh, and thus far, I've failed miserably. And now, I just have nothing but resentment for her.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm not competitive with Jonathan at all. Not at all. Oh well, now I feel um, terrible. Because you're not, that's not real. That's not real. Um, But is it competitive? Oh, yeah. I think it's competitive. I mean, it's the biggest reading genre in the world, so there So, well, there's so, a reason for that, right?
0: So, so, it's competitive in terms of, of finding eyeballs and sales and so forth. Yes. But I guess I wonder if the question is more like my interpretation is, does it feel like caddy? Does it get uh, particularly contentious between the authors? I haven't seen that too much.
1: I've seen some, but i I mostly ignore it. So I mean, I don't participate in it. I mostly yeah, ignore you're very good about right? staying
0: staying away from that stuff. I feel like, I feel like too, I've now met and become friends with some of the f- friends that you have who are also romance writers. And I feel like you've done a really good job of curating, you know, collecting a really strong group of allies and, uh, and I inherited that. So I haven't really seen it up close. I don't think, but I'm yeah, sure Yeah,
1: our, our little group that we're a part of that we, um, we kind of make each other better, I think.
0: Yeah, for sure it's truly, truly supportive. Um, but I mean, I guess in anything and in, 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 in any highly, um, self-motivated profession, you're going to have, there's going to be competition. I mean, I, suppose yeah, it's I, mean like I,
1: I think it's the same thing for actors, right? Like there's, oh there's <sighs> a part that's really supportive, right? Your close friends who wish you well and cheer you on. And then there's, You know, people who are not so supportive.
0: Sure, and I think the thing you learn in any artistic endeavor is that you're not really—it's not sports, right? Like, I'm not trying to beat somebody else. I'm not playing in a game. I mean, the competition is really just within myself to be sort of the most focused and best version of me that I can. Like, I I just want to produce the best work I can, and then you let the chips fall where they may, and you do what you can to get it out there and make people aware of it. But then after that, you—you can't be jealous or are upset because all that does is it just the work suffers and then the work suffers and then it just becomes a vicious cycle. I feel like.
1: I have found that I, I think personally the most successful romance authors or any author in any genre are the ones who focus on the work, you know, and who don't focus on, on the other stuff.
0: And um, that's a, a perfect opportunity to mention, speaking of uh, very successful authors, today's guest is Lauren Blakely, who uh, is an absolute delight. Uh, I think both Julie and I were really excited to talk to her, and in the course of this conversation that we had with her, uh, I think fell even more in love with her Uh she I certainly just, did. Yeah, she was just <laughs> a real treat. So um, so please enjoy uh, our conversation now with Lauren Blakely. So today we have with us a number one New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author uh, with over two and a half million books sold. And if you're listening to this podcast, you already know all that, uh, um, uh give a warm welcome to Lauren Blakely.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Welcome, Lauren.
0: Do you guys know each other from the world?
2: We we pass in
1: the elevator of book shows. Yes. <laughs> we walk back to each other's booths. <laughs> so my my most like biggest memory of you is, is like we're in the Waldorf Historia in Scotland, I think. <laughs>
2: I've never been to Scotland. Oh, that I was liked, and so, I so
1: okay. Scotland I have first. no idea what <laughs> hotel elevator we were in, but, but like I was, that I think is the
2: Holiday Inn in in
1: San Francisco. We did the Golden Gate Book
2: Show. <laughs> but let's pretend it was the Waldorf.
0: Let's set it. Let's go ahead and uh, so let me set the scene. We're in the Waldorf Astoria in Scotland. We're in the elevator, and go.
1: And there we were. Yes. No. I, I just. Um, Did you ever get to that point when you're traveling that you forget what city you wake up in? Because that happened to me in like 2015 or 16.
2: Yeah, there was definitely a year where I was traveling a lot and and frankly, a little too much. And you sort of realize, okay, I'm losing track of where I am and where I'm supposed to be. And riding on the road is not as much fun as it sounds
1: like it should be. I can't write when I'm – no, I can't write at all. Jonathan writes in the airplane.
0: I do. I I actually – because I'm on planes like all the time, and so I just had to get okay with it. But uh, there's a quick anecdote that uh, our readers know, which is very – the summary version. I was actually flying back from shooting a movie, but I was on deadline with Julie, and so I um, had to get the work done. And the lady sitting next to me, I could – catch her out of the corner of my eye, like sort of looking at what I was writing and she kept looking and kept looking. And finally she leans over. She goes, I'm, I'm sorry, if, if you don't mind me asking, what, what, what do you do for a living? And uh, I was in the middle of like a really steamy sex scene. And I looked at her and I thought, God damn it. Am I going to say this? Yeah. Okay. I'll say it. I looked at her dead in the eye and I was like, I write children's books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Love it. <laughs>
0: And then it got real quiet for the rest of the flight, and I was able to get my work done.
2: But you, you know, you need something, you need a go-to line when you're on a plane and you don't want to talk to somebody, and that's brilliant. Like you just ended any conversation so you could keep
1: working. So yeah. good for you. Yeah,
0: thanks. Yeah, it was. It was like, eh, why not? Um, I wanted to ask if you don't mind. We like to start off uh, these conversations by uh, just sort of asking. All of, all of our friends, to tell us like how it is you came to write in this genre, and were you writing before? Like, how, how would the process begin for you?
2: Well, I was actually writing a lot on planes, but I was writing other things. I was a reporter beforehand. I was a freelance journalist for, I don't know, probably 15 years covering television, media, and advertising business. I was covering a lot of new media, online video, like when YouTube first started. And I was fortunate enough to have been able to basically cobble together like a regular. Like very regular work for a number of industry publications many of which have all gone under uh, since then but at the time <laughs> sort of like in the first decade of the 2000s I don't know what we call it I, I 2000 and 2010 whatever the whatever odds. that time frame is Yeah, the hots which is strange I uh, was that that's primarily what I was doing and I was doing it quite regularly where I would often have uh, two to three short pieces due a day and three or four 800 word features due every week. So I was writing every day. I had deadlines every day. I wrote for a television week magazine for about 10 years as basically, uh, I I was on, I was a freelancer technically, but I was effectively their new media reporter and just kind of functioning in the same way most of their staff reporters did wrote for advertising age, um, just a, a bunch of trade publications. And I used to say, I'm the, I'm the only journalist who doesn't want to write the great American novel. And <laughs> of course, I, that was a lie. <laughs> so I am going to write something like nonfiction. I was <laughs> like, I only like writing about true things. Uh, but Now that, that, that I prefer making it all up. It's, uh, <laughs> but you still have to fact check just as diligently. That's really the amazing thing about writing novels it's like yeah you're making up the feelings and everything but you have to make sure you um, spell the neighborhood correctly in Paris and that it actually is a neighborhood and that there really is something there or else admit that you took artistic license so yeah
0: yeah but so so then when did the when did the transition happen for you?
2: Well, I I believe it was around 2012, that's when I, I was started, starting to transition out of being a reporter to doing some conference organizing, because I, that was when um, publications started to implode, like around 2010. They just, you know, print publications, especially trade publications, were, were really having a hard time. Television week started to shut down. Yeah. So I was able to kind of segue out of it. Since I had a little bit of an expertise in TV and media, I, I, and advertising was starting to help program conferences, like for ad tech and iMedia. So I did that, which, which is actually quite rewarding. Um, in in its own way Uh, but then you know necessity is the mother of invention i lost that job because i was you know i was freelance i was on contract and they were making changes and blah 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 something wow okay i've lost some of my biggest clients and everything is changing i have children i have bills to pay where is that trunk novel because i had while i was uh while while i've been working for television week and other publications i had written three uh, they were, you know, called chiclet novels at the time. And I'd had an agent in 2006 and 2007, and we tried to sell them and none of them sold to publishers. Uh, but so I had these books already done. And I had a good friend who said to me, I, I, I published under a different name, uh, published some young adult novels that none of them ever earned out their advances. Uh, so a good friend of mine said, after things weren't happening in YA, why don't you take uh, those you know chicklet books you wrote and try to turn them into romance because that's what's happening now in self-publishing and this was around 2012, and I finally said yeah I guess I sort of need to, uh, and that's what I did. I took the the very first one. And I, you know, I read a little Sylvia Day and my, I I, I certainly am not going to try to say I I hit the level of eroticism or even storytelling that she did. My first book was much tamer, but it definitely, read, you know, some Michelle Layton, some other authors who were on in that sort of first wave of publishing. I'm like, okay, I sort of have a sense of what i can do with this existing property that i have and i took that and i turned it into caught up in us which was my first romance novel it probably has about 20 percent of what it first was probably mostly dialogue and character descriptions but you know i had to change it to give it more conflict and and appropriate conflict for the marketplace and all of that and sort of you know make the man more alpha uh, although my alphas are like sweet alphas (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> I don't really go into the whole, like uh, growley alpha um so yeah that's that was that was what I did and I told myself that okay if this I I think I said if it sells, I don't remember if I said ten thousand units or ten thousand dollars. But it was something in the ten thousand range, but that was back when we would like release things and then drop it at ninety nine cents a few weeks later, and nobody cared. Um, right. but I, I did I did hit that I did hit that goal, and that was when the New York Times bestseller list was thirty five. Spots long, and it was just ebook. So when I when I did pull that trigger three weeks in on a ninety nine cent sale, it, I didn't even have to run ads or anything. It just was like, oh, it floated up, uh, and I wound up hitting the New York Times the extended list for the first time with *Caught Up in Us*. So I'm like, okay, I'll keep trying. That's wow.
1: amazing. And you know what's funny? Um, I did the same. I had the same um, strategy in 2013 when I released a *Tragic* and then put it on sale almost immediately at 99 cents, but you're right. It worked back then. Um, I don't know if it works now, actually.
2: No, I, it doesn't. I mean, not like that. And this is also when Nook was still incredibly powerful. It was yeah. just one of these things that I could never have anticipated, but when I put caught up In us on sale, it was in the top three on Barnes & Noble. It was I'm selling 1,400 units a day on Barnes & Noble. Like that wow. never happens. I mean, if, if you sell 1,400 in a release week for yeah. a book that's been on pre-order for six months, you're like, yes, that's awesome. It just doesn't happen. But it was one of those things where it was completely unexpected and that weird sort of magic that it, it, it worked. And uh, God bless Nook in 2013. Did, did you find transitioning
0: from uh, the model that was traditional, you know, publisher and agent and that to doing it for yourself, it was intimidating. Was it hard? Like, how was that for you?
2: I think it was a little bit intimidating and I probably uh, honestly had a little bit of that. Oh, you know, self-publishing. It's so different from traditional publishing. I need the validation, right? I think that a lot of people who are traditionally published and, and might shun self-publishing for whatever reason, uh, you know they, they have their reasons for that, and probably before I tried it, and before I became serious about it, I had a little reluctance because you think, oh, I've been anointed by a publisher. Little Brown bought my book. Right, that's different. Of course, Little Brown couldn't sell my book, <laughs> so who cares? It really right. didn't matter at the end of the day. But there was there was definitely that that sense, and I, I had to let go of. Whatever preconceived notions had been in my head, because I had been trying to pursue, because there was only one route in for the longest time, and I had been banging on that door since 2007. Like, take my chiclet, take this, take that, and the, and you know, there's this one agent at Writer's House with my book trophy husband. Where I had sent it to him, and he had offered to represent it. He had he had he was the agent who had done um, the First Wife's Club. You know, they want to become a movie with, with Goldie yeah. Hawn. And, and he called me up. And of course, has assistant call, uh, Al Zuckerman on the line. So this was, I think, in 2008, 2009. And I'm like, oh, my God, Al Zuckerman's calling me. <laughs> I mean, oh, this is going to be the next First Wives Club. I love this. I love this. <laughs> this, is great. this is great. And he called me back a week later. And they told me he was representing it. And he wanted me to tell all the other agents who had it that I was now wrapped by Al Zuckerman. I'm like, oh, of course. Of course. It's Al Zuckerman. And he calls me back a week later. I'm not going to represent this anymore.
0: Are you kidding me? Jesus
2: um, Christ
1: my god that yeah,
2: really did happen it was funny because that wound up being actually my second book that hit new york times I'm like take for you
1: <laughs>
2: i was significantly revised and changed but you know those are the sort of things that that you that, that that happened i mean you would pursue these big deal agents and they would tell you what they could do for you and um and hey you know it, it works for some authors i mean there's you know many amazing books that are published by the big publishing houses in new york but that was sort of the way in, and 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 it, and then I had to twist my own thinking and change my own thing and realize, wait, there's an entirely other way in. And I think because I had done the freelance writing for so long, the transition to running my own business and managing those other aspects was not quite as daunting. Once I realized, sure. okay, this is this is what I'm doing now, and I just have to keep managing it as as I've managed, you know, as I've juggled, you know, ten freelance clients. Now I'm going to start juggling, formatting books yeah. and uploading books and all of these things.
0: Sure. You know, it is interesting that to hear you talk about it. Just because when I first, when Julie first invited me to write with her, and we got into this world together, uh, I was like, "Well, okay, and we'll pursue." And it, it's maybe not off the table wholesale, but I was like, oh, "Well, pursue an agent. We'll do the things." Do. she was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I come from you know, I've had this career where Fair. I have agents and I have managers, and this is how it works, and this is what I know." And now that uh, I see the joy that uh, the autonomy, uh, can allow for, it's really hard to imagine in another, in another part of my life, giving over to that, you know, we're working on this TV deal with this series of Julie's books right now. And yesterday some stuff happened and Julie, and hearing you talk just calls to mind, Julie saying yesterday, she was like, wow, your shit really is dynamic. Like she's like the TV and the Hollywood world really is a dynamic, fast moving thing. And just hearing you talk about, yes, I'm gonna rep your book, and then a week later, no, I'm not gonna rep your book. It's so much the same. And it's just it's maddening.
2: Yeah, it's it's really crazy. And I was uh, I I worked with William Morris, you know, so I, my, my very first young adult novel was read by William Morris. So you think, Oh my God, got it wow. in with William Morris. Yeah. Like this is huge. And she, and she was in impo- my agent, there was impossible to reach. We had like maybe two phone calls. The oh, yeah. entire, and she did, you know, she did a two book deal for me. Uh, but, I but do have to say the agent I have now is wonderful. And we've been together since I believe twenty eleven. and we've just gone through all of these transitions through 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 y a and you know she's done a few deals for the romance novels that I'm writing. And we just partnered together in all sorts of interesting ways on the self-published stuff. So even though, you know I, I've had a few run-ins with agents who, uh, have have not been the best and haven't had great relationships with. I, I definitely have a great relationship now, and and she's she just really has roles with sort of the non traditional aspect of what publishing is today, and at least what publishing is for me today.
1: I think you have probably dipped your toes into everything, um, because you're you have done a lot, Lauren, in the in the short time that you've been doing this. I guess it's not short anymore. It's been what, six years, almost seven. It's gone, it's gone by quickly though, right? Uh, so quick. <laughs> right? I, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, so I think that's great that you have all this stuff. I love it.
2: Yeah, I love the diversification. I love to be able to try the different things and test out different relationships and you know, really see what works and which ones I like and which ones I want to uh, keep going with. And I think that's been really one of the best parts about Moving forward with self-publishing is just feeling like you can try all of these different things and decide what you're going to have at the at the smorgasbord. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. Uh, at it's the end of the <laughs> it is, it's a stranger. What are you going to have at the salad bar at the end of the day? <laughs> <laughs> so that Instead,
0: well, the, you and Julie. I mean, one of the things you guys I feel like have in common is that you're because it sounds like you're writing constantly, like you're highly prolific, right? Yes. You feel, do you feel that you are? I mean, I know that Julie feels sometimes she'll say to me, like, I, if I have to write one more word today, my brain's going to explode, but I have to, because I owe what I owe. Uh, Are you constantly writing?
2: I think it can feel that way at times. Yeah, definitely. But I try to segment out my time and structure it to sort of hit certain word count goals each day. So they don't feel like it all kind of bleeds over but I I do feel like the writing brain never really shuts off and and you get the point like when you're at the end of a book or it, it can even be in the beginning you know you wake up in the middle of the night dogs need to go outside you let them out and then you're like lying awake in bed I mean, it's sort of the proverbial writer and you're thinking of the next scene and what you want to work on. And I'm like, I want to go back to sleep. Let me go back to sleep. <laughs> but then you've just solved this beautiful thread in your novel. So you, yeah, can't really, that's like, nice. you can't really regret either the fact that you're you're awake in the middle. So I sort of feel like I'm like, it's like you're always writing. In a way, which sounds incredibly cheesy and sort of ridiculous, but I think there's always this this loop going on in the back of your head sure. where you're kind of, you know, taking in this information and thinking, okay, the next scene, the next scene. I, I do think that's anybody who's in any sort of creative field probably is a little bit like that. You know, we're sort of present, but also
1: absent some of the time as well. Well, I want to talk about dogs. Uh, talk dogs. Okay. Ba- back to dogs. I want to know all the dogs you have.
2: <laughs> so I have five dogs, uh, which is kind of a lot. And for our small dogs, they're chihuahua mixes because most small dogs have a little chihuahua in them. Chihuahuas are very busy making other chihuahuas and other <laughs> chihuahua mixes. <laughs> so so I, have, I have two chihuahua minpin type of dogs. Uh, I have a more of like a, almost, almost a purebred, but not really, because they're all adopted dogs. They're all from shelters, and uh, then I have this tiny five-pound. I don't know what she is Chihuahua something. She kind of looks like Chihuahua met a fox, super adorable, and her name is Blossom, and she's literally the cutest dog ever. And she was a foster. I was fostering dogs for a local rescue for about six months, and everyone had said to me, like all of my because you know my fans know, my readers know that I'm super dog person. (laughs) They were teasing me like, how long do you think it's gonna last till you adopt one? I'm like, no, I really want to help the rescue. I this is my way of helping other dogs. I'm just I'm just gonna foster where i can because we can't have another dog and then blossom came into our house and she was the sweetest little thing and she fell in love with my daughter who's 13 and my daughter fell in love with her and they were sort of instantly bonded and there was no way i could separate them so we wound up adopting blossom as well and then we also have a bigger dog a 50 pound kind of uh lab border collie mix named violet and she's sort of the big alpha territorial patrols the deck and generally starts all of the barking and
1: howling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I have a white shepherd and, a and a Malamute. Oh, I love shepherds. They're so beautiful. Lauren, They're both are a, um, huge. Are you an I animal person
0: in general or are you just a dog person?
2: I am an animal person in general and mostly a dog person. I, struggle with cats even though i have some Mm. (laughs) one of my cats is very very naughty it's causing a lot of trouble uh so i find but i find cats really great for comedy i i enjoy watching cats i really enjoy cat videos i think a cat falling off A cat tower is one of the funniest things ever. I think like (laughs) like knock mugs off. It's just really fantastic. So I don't love them in that warm, lovey, oh, my God, like my dogs feel like they're my soulmates. Like cats, I I find them, they can be incredibly entertaining.
0: They're they're the curly of the Three Stooges.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's perfect. I have a I have a cat and nobody even knows I have a cat. Okay, wait a minute.
0: Can I say something? I was about what? to say Julie has a menagerie. Okay, I've known you now for a fucking year and a half. We've written like seven books together. We're developing, I had no I, I've been to your home and I didn't know you have a cat.
1: I actually have to correct. I have two cats. I have two cats. <laughs> what
0: the fuck are you saying right now?
1: I You're my daughter right has now. one down in the basement and there are house down there yeah Julie so has I, this
0: compound where everybody has like their own floor kind of a situation so and they like, have seriously?
1: one lovely
0: well i gotta say it's actually not when i think about it it's not shocking because i would laura and i my wife and i were at her house for two days before i even met her son because so, he was in his <laughs> wing
1: well the so i have an outside cat because we have to have a barn cat when you live in the country right you just you it's just like having a car. Um, so I have a, I have an outside cat too. Um, and then we have that cat that lives downstairs. So I have two,
0: <laughs> I met the donkeys before I met your kids <laughs> that out to everybody. Um, so I guess this is a, this is, it kind of dovetails into my next question, which is with as much as you write Lauren and you know, you've got a kid, you've got the animals you get, and you were talking about sort of, I guess, compartmentalizing or allocating out the time that you need. Do you have a rigid structure or how does that work for you?
2: Oh, it's both rigid and it spills over. I, I do try to do most of my writing when everyone's out of the house. My husband works out of the house. He he works for himself as well. He used to work in the house and I kicked him out about two years ago and I told him, you need to go find an office space. Hmm. Uh, so he's found sort of one of those co-working spaces, which actually he loves Because he is, you know, former... Jock athlete type has this competitive nature. It's like he'll go into the office space where nobody speaks because they don't work together. Put on his headphones and he'll be like, "I'm going to work faster and better and get more done than anyone else here all day long." I'm like, hey, whatever works, you know. <laughs> he's like the guy at the gym, he'll be riding the exercise bike. I'm going faster than that other guy. Five rows down.
0: Is he like meditating more aggressively than the next guy? And- <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> works for him. I'm like great, keeping you motivated, keeping you productive. So he's out because I really like silence. I really like having the house to myself with, you know, just with the dogs and the kids are at school. But then my son comes home and he's usually home between three 30 and four. So I have to kind of segue out. And I, and, and what I, so what I try to do is really hit those work count goals. If I can buy around one or two and then sit down, have lunch and edit what I've written that day. And then ideally, if it's one of those days where everything is clicking, I will actually try to dictate what I'm going to write the next day, what I want to work on the next scenes and try to get that done before anybody comes home. And then when they're home, because I mean they're teenagers, my son is 18. He was accepted into college. So he's, you know, he's a senior, he's transitioning. um, You know, he's going through that senior year transition and getting ready to get out of the house and all of that. And my daughter's heading into, she's finishing eighth grade and has a lot of homework. So, you sort of need to be present as a mom and talk to them and see what they need. But then once they get into the homework mode, I'm like, what am I, uh, okay, I'm going to go format a book. I'm going to answer these emails. I'm going to get my, you know, write my character notes for my audiobooks and get those out to my narrators. I'm going to, you know, download graphics from my designer. So I, so I feel like it's always sort of happening and occurring, but I try to do the more fluid business work, Towards the end of the day, where it doesn't require as much, hopefully, creative brain power.
1: Okay, I have a follow up. Do you think you're kind of a workaholic, or do you? That's just the question. Do you think you Probably, love yeah. to work? Because I, I kind, I kind of love to work.
2: Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I don't. I, I'm not one of. I, I don't relax easily. I don't crave a lot of. Time doing nothing. I, as as you guys know, we were talking about before the show. I, I just recently went to Hawaii for four days with my husband right after Thanksgiving, and it was great. I loved it, and I needed a break. And I booked the vacation three weeks before we left when I was at a really high stress level, and I knew I needed it. But I really only need a few days, and then I'm sort of missing things. And I remember on Sunday morning, I'd been in Hawaii for 48 hours. I'm lying on the beach at our hotel. And I'm thinking of something I wanted to do with these three books that I, I finished and that were going to be coming out in 2019. I'm like, Oh, I have this great idea. I I'd finished this L Kennedy book. I'd finished the score and she had this great way of planting the seed for the next book in the series. I'm like, oh my God, I have to do that. And my books were, mm-hmm. you know, they hadn't come out yet, but all three of them were finished. I'm like, okay. So I say to my husband, I'm just going to go into the room and just just dictate and then send it to the trans- transcription service. I had a great idea for these three seeds. So go ahead. And he's so used to it. He knows that's what I'm like. He's He doesn't say, no, honey, you have to stay off of your phone. You will have to be disconnected. He knew that it was actually going to be more beneficial for me to just like, get the, those ideas out. So I go into the hotel room, I'm walking around my phone, and I'm just dictating like these three ending scenes that I was going to have and insert into these books that I'm working on. And I think that actually calms me down rather than makes me feel as if I'm missing my relaxation time,
1: you know? And, and fine, you kind of go with what works for you. I understand that completely because in publishing or anything creative, anything almost really, you don't have a lot of control over things, right? Like it, when we publish a book, we have almost no control over what happens next. The only thing we have control over is what we produce, right? Exactly. So, so I feel like if I'm working, I'm somehow making progress and I'm taking some control into out of this job that has so little of it, you know?
2: Right. You don't know how long Amazon is going to take to publish your pre-order or your live release. I mean, all of these things, who else is releasing? Well, God forbid, what's happening in the world right. when you release, I mean, there's so many things that are, and, and the market is changing and shifting every day. It's, it's definitely tighter than it was a few years ago. So yeah, the work is the only thing, the story yeah. is the only thing that you can control. Yeah,
0: well, and in the spirit of that, in the spirit of a changing market and 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 how that has affected the way people approach the work, has that affected the way that you write? I guess what I'm asking is your voice is very distinct, it's yours, it's, uh, it's desirable, it, it works extremely well. Do you feel like the changing market influences cause you to ever question what you're writing and think about altering that at all? Or do you stay true to that pretty much throughout?
2: I really do like writing romantic comedies. I feel like when I wrote Big Rock in the fall of 2015, because I released that in January 2016, that's when I sort of had this magic moment of, oh, this is this is exactly how I want to be writing. That's not to say every book is going to be like that, but I had been doing a lot of third person, more erotic type of romances, like my seductive night series and my Sinful night series. Right. And while I love them, I think there was just something when I finally got into Big rock where it's like, I can write all the puns I want. I can make yeah. dick jokes, like I can yeah. do these things. It's like a little bit of Lauren Unleash. I can be a little cheesy. And you know, sometimes I get dinged reviews like, oh, her books are a little cheesy. I'm like, I know. That's <laughs> <to be. laughs> it's okay. <laughs> like if you don't want banter, you shouldn't read me. <laughs> like that's that's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get a little bada bing here and there. Uh, so I felt like I finally, finally found, oh, this is exactly the type of work that I like to do. And I'll definitely diverge from that from time to time. I released a more emotional romance this past summer on Break My Heart. So you kind of mix it up when you feel the muses calling to you. But I think by and large I, that this is, this is really what I want to be writing. I love comedies. I love watching romantic comedy movies. When I'm watching TV shows, it is rarely ever a drama. So I think it just really fits my personality and what I'm interested in. I will say that since the market has shifted in the last few years, or at least since, you know, the most recent shifts, I have tried different publishing strategies. I have toyed with, uh, tighter releases for series, more clear demarcation of series, and have really gone back and looked at the data to see what actually works for my readership. But it does seem, you know, for now, knock on wood, but at least there's still enough interest <laughs> in romantic <laughs> comedies to kind of keep going in that direction.
1: I don't think um, romantic comedies go out of style. I really don't. Right. Not in Not in books, they don't.
2: Yeah. I mean, they might, they'll, they'll be highs and lows. There'll be peaks and you know, that's fine. I think that's, that's one of the things that I always tried to remember when I came into publishing is that you're, you're, you're never going to be on top forever. If you're having like a great year or a great run, you know, be grateful, uh, be helpful, you know, help others when they come to you and ask for advice, um, and just know that like what goes up is going to come down that, you know, not every book is going to, is going to be like big rock and that's okay. You, you, you can't, you know, you can't, ex, you can't expect that. So I think if you know that and you really have that approach going in and then it's like, okay, so this book sold 200,000 units, this book sold 20,000 units and that's okay. It doesn't mean one was a failure and one was better than the other. Just so, sort of knowing that and having that awareness of how markets operate and how content operates it's like hollywood you know some there's just like frozen that's a hit not every movie is going to be frozen
0: yeah <laughs> and who could have I predicted really that have right?
2: To be frozen, right you can't you can't predict that you don't even know how it's going to turn out you just have to be grateful if, if you get a little taste of that
0: well it's funny i was going to compare you to i was going to say that you're like the chuck Lorre of romantic comedy <laughs> uh, Chuck Lorre, who, in case people don't know, created a Big Bang Theory and Mike and Molly's, his career goes back to Roseanne and Two and a Half Men. And in conversation, Chuck will say, I'm not trying to please an audience. I'm genuinely trying to write the things that I and create the things that I uh, am interested in that appeal to me. It just happens that they've struck a chord. And I feel yeah, like yeah. that's a little bit what you're saying, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's all you can do. I think that when people try to write to the market or say, what trends are you seeing? Uh, That becomes risky and dangerous because you're not really writing to your heart. And,
1: And readers can tell. They can tell.
2: Yeah, they can absolutely tell. Now, my inspiration for Big Rock, oddly enough, With Sierra Simone's Priest. Of course, if you've read Mm. Priest and you're familiar with Big Rock, they have pretty much nothing in common. But they have one thing in common. It's all (laughs) male point of view. And that's really what... I I saw the excitement around Priest. And I read Priest and I blurbed it. And and it's still one of those books that continues to be talked about. And I just remember thinking, how can I do a Priest... But for me, and that I think is really like, if you are trying to respond to the market, like I could never write priest. I couldn't even write like 10% of anything remotely close to it. That's just, that is what Sierra Simone is so uniquely good at capturing. Mm -hmm. But what I said was, I want to find a way to do an all male point of view book that fits with where I want my brand to go. And, 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 and then Big Rock came out. I'm like,
1: okay, that, that sort of, that sort of worked. I love it. That's very interesting. Yeah. I love it too.
0: Um, when you were talking um, uh, earlier about writing for Audible first, I'm I'm curious about that. Does that, does that affect the way that you approach it? Do you, do you think about it like, oh, I'm writing a radio play or do you think about it like, no, at the end of the day, it's still a book and, and I need to service the book before the audio.
2: I'm kind of obsessed with audio. I love it as me a listener, too. me too. I, it's my, it's, it's like my preferred medium. And it's partly because I fall asleep right away at night. So I get a lot of,
0: you're meetings. so lucky.
2: <laughs> I'm very lucky. <laughs> yeah. Like I read a paragraph. I'm like, okay. I'm out. Uh, but I, you know, I'm busy. I'm busy with the dogs. I'm busy keeping up my house and all that. So I actually do have a lot of time to listen. So I probably listen for about an hour and a half or two hours a day. And I just, I finding, um, a voice that you love. It sort of reminds me of one, like one of my. I feel fortunate because I'm, I'm doing what I'm passionate about, I'm writing. Uh, but beyond writing, probably the, the thing besides family and dogs that I love most is theater, musical theater. And I, I have since I was a kid. And I feel like audiobooks kind of hit that same chord inside me, like when they're really good, of like responding to a performance, being touched yeah. by a performance. So, I will write usually with a voice in mind. I almost always cast my audiobooks before I start writing. Mm -hmm. It really helps me to sort of hear, yeah, I hear my version of Sebastian York as I'm writing, or Jason Clark, or Shane East, or whoever whoever it is. But yeah, I do I will modify the script sometimes for audio. I did that in particular for birthday suit, which comes out in January in you know both print and, and uh, both ebook print and, and audio. And that's being performed by a cast of 12 narrators. So mm-hmm. in that case, I, I did, I did, I wouldn't say I significantly modified it. It's the same story, but I really went back and structured it like a script and got rid of things that were just unnecessary. You know, he winces, she turns to Ginny. she looks at me. Like that right. stuff you need in a book, but you don't actually need it when you yeah. have all actors. And, and and when I would list, when I, I just finished proofing it, and it was pretty tight already because I'd modified a lot of that, but I found even more examples that could be cut. And I would send them back to my sound editor and he would trim the scenes even more. So I think it really does feel like a, a like a book met. A play, so that right. that was one where I really did spend a lot of time trimming and tightening it for the particular nature of that production.
0: I know that Julie, well, you uh, because you're so. I, I think this you share this because you're both such audiobook fans. But Julie, I know that you've actually, like, well, I know that you've written or not written for me specifically. Uh, you will, da- you will, when you know that I'm going to narrate one of your books, you will make the dirty parts slightly less dirty for the stuff I have to narrate.
1: <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> I do, I do. Which well, I, I really try appreciate. To, I try to put them in the female point of view. I did that with um, turning back, and I, I was like, all right, I know Jonathan's going to be this guy, so uh, I'm going to give the girl most of the dirty scenes. But I did give you that really dirty scene, and you were like, "What? What is this?"
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But and then I,
1: why I, is that? Are you not comfortable
2: reading those? Or
0: oh, me? No, I, I'm, I'm fine. I think that I think that the unique thing now with me. Well, and in fact, in, in the books that we've written together, you know, I have to take into account because I'm going to be narrating them myself, or at least, uh, part of them myself, uh. I early on had to make the decision that I was not going to be self-editorial, right? Like, I need to write what services the story. And if it happens to be something that I'm going to have to sit in a room and say with some dude sitting on the other side of the glass, looking at me, judging me for having written it, that's just the way that's going to go. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, so, so no, not because of that. I think it's actually because Julie gets likes to listen to her books. But she skips the sex scenes, and because now we're in conversation all the time, and we're so like closely aligned, and we're partnering, and we're writing, I think it may have just been because you didn't want to have to hear me say that shit in your ear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh God, that's funny.
0: I mean, is that fair? Does that sound right?
1: I mean, it's just kind of weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. So we were on the phone this one time and I don't know if you remember Jonathan. It wasn't that long ago, but you we were talking about audiobooks and you slipped into your audiobook voice. Remember? you were like, this is audible or something like that. And I was like, like I had to stop for a second because I was like, oh, this, this doesn't process for me. Like I, how I talk to you every day and then you slip into this audiobook voice that just threw me out of my reality. It was weird.
2: It is funny. It's funny when you have a conversation. Uh, there are a few of my narrators who we'll talk to on the phone, right? And they have their on voices and their off voices. Yeah. I mean, like Joe Arden. It's funny when we've talked on the phone a few times, and and it, it's different. You know, it's a little different from from when he's narrating any any type of scene. But it's still it's entertaining to hear all of the different varieties of voices that a voice actor has at his or her disposal.
0: Yeah, my pseudonym is my pseudonym is Tad Branson, and uh, the story of how I became Tad Branson is all I, didn't I know. Did.
2: You were Tad Branson. Yeah, that's yeah. me. <laughs> Wait, and, so you uh, did? You did Serena Bowen? Uh, didn't you do Bittersweet? Oh yeah. Oh yeah! Yeah, that was great. I listened to that in audio. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great. <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, yeah, yeah, that was me. I was, <laughs> I, was I was Griff.
2: Thinking, I was thinking with Jonathan McLean. Have I seen that on an audiobook? He married. What is he? That's I so was, great. You are a great place. Uh,
0: I was Griff. Yeah. I. I mean, the, the the very very long story, which we can tell you off off mic sometime, is that Julie and I have this partnership because under my own name, I had narrated a book uh, that did very, very well, a sci-fi book that Julie heard, and she requested that they find me. And and then I wound up narrating her books. And and then that's how I developed the series that I narrated into a TV show. And that's how she and I started collaborating. And then after we did the TV script, she said, do you want to write books? And that's sort of the tumbling process of how this all came to be. So it all tracks back to Tad Branson. And I've always joked, I've always joked that like Tad, I mean, Tad needs like his own percentage of my career because he's been responsible for like the last year and a half of good things. People are like, is Tad different than you? And I was like, yeah, Tad has a mustache. And that's, <laughs> that's when, I, when, I, when I'm when I doing Tad narration, I have to think of myself in a mustache.
2: <laughs>
1: You're state. Burt Reynolds.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's Burt Reynolds. He's very Burt Reynolds. I just assume. Yeah, I've only done one uh, romance book under my own name. And that was a book I did for, for a, a major publisher for Penguin Random House. And it was a, a Joanna Wild book. Um, yeah, it was general. one of her one of her motorcycle and one of her MC um, books. And <laughs> and the producer called and said, um, I have a book for you. It's romance. I know that you do them. And it's not at all. Do you, will you do it under your name just because I had already been nominated for an award and, dah, dah, dah. and I was like, yeah, sure, fine. She was like, it's not at all porny. I was like, of course it's not. It's fine. It's whatever. And it wasn't, but... The first page had literally the filthiest shit I've ever said, like right there, <laughs> right out of the gate. And then Julie and I were at a book signing um, in Denver at book, at book Bonanza this past August. It was sort of our coming out party as a writing duo. And I had a young girl who didn't know the backstory and the narrative come up to me. Young girl, she must have been about like 22 or something. And she comes up to me with a book and she goes, she goes, um, are, are you the Jonathan McLean who narrated the MC romance? And I was like, uh, yeah, she's like, um... That was like so good and and like oh my god and will you and I was like um, sure I'm happy to sign it and suddenly I felt like really awkward and like my cape had been pulled off and like the Superman mm-hmm. and I was Clark Kent standing there being acknowledged as it was a very strange experience and uh, and I don't know how it is I came to choose a pseudonym although as you well know Lauren lots of narrators do. Um, it's it's become interesting because there are those listeners who know that Jonathan McLean, who writes with Julie Huss, is Tad Branson, and there are those who I don't.
2: No clue. It's so funny. I had no idea at all, and I've listened to your books. So it's, it's well,
0: you know, Tad's a, he's a different guy, and but yeah. but the thing that the thing that you said earlier, this is maybe a non sequitur, but I want to circle back to it. When you, I love that you compared it to a theatrical experience, um, because I feel like an audiobook. Done well is a huge responsibility in the sense that I've said that film and TV is like running wind sprints, doing a play is like running a marathon, and then reading an audiobook is like running an ultra marathon where you start in, in like the mountains and end at the sea or something, right? And that the listener is trusting you with hours of their time. And it is a real responsibility to deliver unto them the most compelling campfire tale they've ever heard right and um and so uh i, I love that analogy that you made just because i i think it's true it, it should be magical it should be transportive it should be an experience that really sticks with you after it's done um yeah
2: i want to- I want to be moved by it, and 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 I want I want even if it's a romantic comedy, I want that moment where my heart is in my throat, and it's because of how you know Joe and Maxine you did this scene, or how Todd and Saskia pulled this off, and I'm like, oh yes, it's all going to work out. Thank God. Oh my God, he realized like, and he's experiencing emotional growth, and I'm I'm totally a sap, and I love it, and that's what I want. Like, I want to laugh, I want to be moved, and. I feel that way honestly when I listen to the work that the narrators do on my books and I don't say that to toot my own horn as the writer, but I just I respect them so much and I spend so much time hiring I, I believe just the right narrator for each role. So and then important. when I listen to it improves and And I do have that. My heart is in my throat or I'm cracking up. I'm just like, oh my God, they did it. They just, they totally moved me. And I already (laughs) knew the story and I've read it 20 times and they moved me. And that is, that's what I want to experience. Not even as a creator. But as a human being, that's yeah, as, one. As a listener, why,
1: yeah,
2: right. Like as a listener, it's like when you watch a great movie, when you watch a fun TV show. Like I want to be transported. I want to feel something. That's what our listeners want. That's what our readers want. And it is truly magical when you're feeling that, and when a performer has done that for you as an audience member, or as a reader or listener.
1: Yeah. You kind of get lost. You kind of get lost. Uh, I know the book that Jonathan did that I, made me want him for my books was Illuminae. And I just got, I'd stopped working for like four days to listen to this book. I was so engrossed in it. So it's, I totally get that. I love the audiobooks.
0: Well, it's an interesting gamble that you took too, because like Illuminae is uh, definitely far afield from what you would ask me to narrate, but uh, that's sort of a credit to your vision to say oh but I believe that that performer would s- even though it's not what I do would sync well and I think that that's a gift unto itself and uh, and sometimes you just you just get lucky um Julie do you want to ask uh the question that uh that you like to ask that yeah. I'm super super curious to hear the answer to
1: yeah, I am too. I've been thinking about this for like five minutes now. So Lauren, we're asking everybody the same question at the end. And the question is, if you knew then what you know now, what would you do different?
2: I think I, there's no, honestly, there's not a lot that I would do differently. And that's not because I've done everything right, but it's because I try to live without regrets. I think it is, um, a useless emotion. I think it's a difficult emotion. It's one that I don't want to experience. So I really try to go for the things that I want and try the things that I want to try. I think probably if I was looking back on my first year in publishing, the one thing I would have done differently is, uh, yeah, no, if I could if I could control this aspect of myself is be a little less obsessive. Wouldn't that be great? I've been seeing a shrink for twenty years. I'm not quite, good, but I'm better. But it, it is just enjoy the ride. When things yeah. are going well, it's like you want to be able to enjoy the ride and I mean think it's I I think it's very easy and dangerous. And and frankly, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen anymore because I haven't hit the New York times in in two years and I'm like, whatever, it's fine. It's cool. But I think there was a stretch where I was fortunate enough and, and, you know, was having the kind of sales where I could hit it, but there was also, this is such a gold plated problem, but you know, during release week, I wasn't able to enjoy myself as much as I'm like, what were my sales today? Is it going to be enough? And you have to sort of let go of the need to have, whether it's USA Today, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, to have that validation and just say, like, I'm enjoying the fact that I've put out this book and that people are touched by it, that they're reading it, that they're enjoying it. And I feel like I've, I think I've been able to achieve a little bit of a better zen about that as I've gone on. I think I was missing that probably in my first year or two. And probably because there was so much uncertainty, like, is this going to work out?
1: yeah am for I going, sure
2: go, am I going to need to become a reporter god forbid again am I gonna to have to program conferences again am I gonna to have to go write a white paper and just want to die if I ever have to write a technical white paper ever again in my life and I haven't thank god and really probably because I haven't had to write a white paper again I'm so happy you know? <laughs> like, it's one of the worst and most painful writing experiences so I'm like yay I get to make this up so I I think that's it and that's what I try to tell other writers I I think that's one of the most dangerous pitfalls is that a lot of writers just don't look for the joy in the everyday moments whether it's finding a great cover photo or having a you know great interaction with a reader or even a great conversation with a fellow writer i think those are the things that we have to uh, embrace that that you know that bring that sort of daily joy into our lives because there is so much that is out of our control and that is an up and down so it's like you just have to enjoy that instead of Uh, instead of wondering what's going to happen the next day.
1: I think that's one of the hardest lessons, yeah, to learn in self-publishing is that this is a hilly ride, right? And it's going to go up and it's going to go down. And it takes a while for new authors to understand it and get comfortable with it. I think I'm pretty comfortable with it now too. I think I'm in the same place as you. And it just and honestly, it
2: just takes time, Julie. Right? I think that's the thing.
1: Yeah,
2: just like okay, we've we've seen these cycles. You know, we can we can look back and say, oh yeah, that happened in twenty twelve. Like you'll hear new newer authors like, oh my god, this release was different than last year, and we're like, yeah, and it was different than twenty twelve. It was different than twenty fourteen, and that's just the yeah. That's the benefit of getting older, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the few wiser. (laughs) I would also recommend (laughs)
0: to all new writers, uh, please try and partner up with one of the uh, most spectacular talents in the field. Uh, It really helps ease the burden (laughs) quite a lot. Um, Lauren, I feel like we're just, seriously, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Would you, we would love to have you you back on if you want to come on again sometime and just say yes.
2: Yes. This was a (laughs) great conversation. I loved it. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so honored. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you for coming. We were honored.
0: Uh, And we'll talk soon.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Love Notes Podcast with Jay Huss and Jonathan McLean. You can find us on the web at lovenotespodcast.com. And if you stop by, we have a comment section at the bottom of each page where you can ask us questions about our guests or any other thing on your mind. Each week, we'll choose a few to answer on the air. And you do not want to miss our next podcast with Jennifer L. Armantraut, so be sure to hit subscribe.
0: So thank you so very much for listening. Uh, we hope that you feel the love uh, in the same way that we feel it coming from you. Uh, we're excited that you are letting us into your your world. And until the next time, uh, we want to say stay happy, stay healthy, and stay lovely. Love Notes is produced by Emily Durr, J.A. Huss, and me. Executive producer is Oh My Audiobooks, an imprint of Podium Publishing. Editing by Troy Odie. Our theme song and music is by Brandon Costello. Special thanks to my wife, Laura, for being patient and quiet while I have to record these things, Julie's entire family and her donkeys for being generally excellent, and Emily Durr for being Canadian. Finally, the art on our website was made by Julie Huss. You can check it out at lovenotespodcast.com. That's lovenotespodcast.com. Support for Love Notes comes from Oh My Audiobooks, where the pleasure is all yours.